This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, I was going to give you more time than that, but since everyone got quiet, good morning. I'm Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians. This morning, we'll be returning to our sermon series in the book of Philippians, which we began in the fall and which has served many of us very well building up our faith. We took a break from our sermon series for Advent, and then we had a couple of Sundays with a special focus on reading Scripture as we are planning, many of us, to read through the Bible together this year. So if you've just begun visiting and attending CCK recently, you maybe don't know that we are in the middle of a series of sermons from this wonderful little book, which we call Philippians, actually a letter a God-inspired letter written under the superintendence of God's Holy Spirit by a man named Paul who was a missionary pastor, an evangelist, an apostle in the first century. He went to the region of Macedonia and there he established a Christian church by, by telling people about Jesus and those people believed in Jesus. He left that church to do other missionary work and was eventually, for his faith in Christ and his preaching Christ, arrested and imprisoned. So he's writing a letter to this church, a little church plant, a new church. He's writing to them from prison and he's eager to do it because he loved this church and they loved him. In fact, they supported his missionary work as he went around to other places to share the gospel. So this missionary pastor, Paul, the God-inspired author of this letter, and the people who were part of this little church in the city of Philippi, they loved one another, and they loved their Lord Jesus. Paul wrote this letter in order to encourage them. And in Philippians 2, in just a moment, we're going to begin reading with verse 14. He is following up on his exhortation to the Christians in Philippi to have the mind of Christ and to live like Christ, to work out their salvation joyfully because God is working in them. So let's pick up on that discourse in Philippians 2, beginning with verse 14. We'll read down through verse 18. This is the Word of God. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering." 
upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. May God add His blessing to this reading of His Word and our study of it together this morning. When Jennifer and I were first married, I worked my way through college by working in the maintenance department at the school where we attended. Now, I know some of you who know me are questioning whether this is a fact or not, but it is true that I actually can fix things around the house. It's just that I don't like to and I don't want to, but I can do it. And God in His kindness for the first five years of our marriage provided for our family through that means of working in the maintenance department at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. And as part of my job in the maintenance department, I helped maintain the steam heat system in the buildings on campus and would routinely need to go around and inspect steam pipes in that system for leaks. And in the college's flagship building, which is the one that you can see actually from the interstate in, in Chattanooga, kind of looks like a castle. Underneath that building, there is a 100-yard tunnel. It's really sort of a crawl space tunnel. It's three by three, about three by three feet square, and it's 100 yards. And in that tunnel are all kinds of pipes, steam pipes, water pipes, sewer pipes, and valves, and so on. And as part of my duties, once a year, I had to get down and crawl through that tunnel and look for leaks. And on one occasion, I was crawling in that tunnel, and I had with me uh, one of those big metal mag flashlights, and I'm crawling along, sort of army crawling through this thing, under pipes, over pipes, going along, and I got nearly halfway into the tunnel when the bulb in that flashlight went out. And there were no lights. And have you ever been, have you ever been in a dark place where you could just feel the darkness? And I'm, I'm there and I, I can feel the weight of this 10-story building above me and I'm down in the earth and it's dark and, and, and seconds start to go by and experience this sort of panic, you know, the panic where you're just doing this thing, just trying to figure out what to do. But thankfully... Being the nerd that I am, I, I had in my front shirt pocket one of these little pin light things, which I pulled out and I pushed the side of it and bing, there's a little light. So I was able to crawl out by the light of that teeny little flashlight. When you are in a dark place, you need light. You want light. And I think it probably wouldn't take too much for me to convince you that we live in a world that is sometimes very dark, and yet we can thank our God that He is sending light into a dark world. Jesus Christ said He is the light, and He is and He comes into the world so that His people can be drawn to Him through faith. Furthermore, 
And very marvelously and mysteriously, God brings light into the world through His people, through ordinary people like you and, and like me. It, it's, it's a marvelous thing. And that is our, our main point this morning. God uses His people to bring light into a dark world. Now, Paul, writing to this church in the city of Philippi, there were very, very few Christians, probably only a handful in this, this big city of Philippi, which was full of many unbelievers. And Paul describes their world like this. Near the end of verse 15, he says, they live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now that word twisted, it, it can mean something like a, it's a perversion of the way things ought to be. So we know that God made a good world, and yet because of humans, beginning with Adam and Eve and all the way up to me and all of you, have rebelled against God, that that world is less than it was created to be. It's, it's a perversion of what God intended. That word twisted there in, in the Greek, it, it can also mean uh, it's led, led away, a leading away. So people in the world are led away from God's design. God is calling all of His creatures to walk in a straight way towards Him, but instead they go off in a crooked direction, in a, another direction. And yet, by God's grace, when a man or a woman or a child repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus Christ, they become God's children. And as God's children, they stand out because they aren't led astray. They aren't, they, they aren't on a crooked way. They, they stand in the way, the truth, the life on the completed work of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, these children of God who trust in Him, this is at the end of verse 15, shine as lights in the world. Or more literally, they light up the universe like the stars do. It's, it's an amazing statement to make. It, it is a, an appearance of God's glory shining through His people. It's incredible. And yet, if you're like me, maybe you don't really feel that radiant. Maybe you feel in this crooked and twisted world a little bit dim yourself. You feel the darkness. Well, the Lord through His Apostle Paul is going to give us some encouragement this morning about how we can shine like light in the world. And he begins, or we should begin anyway, with something that is of first importance. And this will be our, our first point. That to shine in this dark world, we must hold fast to the word of life. None of us are perfect. We know that. 
And no Christian is sinless. Christians are not sinless. In fact, biblical Christians, people who've trusted Christ because they believe what the Bible says about who we are and what God has done in Christ Jesus, are very honest about this. We are sinners. The Christian life begins with an acknowledgement of how sinful and needy we are. We, we are not sinless, but glory be to God, those who trust in Christ Jesus can be, as the beginning of verse 15 says, blameless. That's right. do, do you hear the difference? <laughs> not sinless, but blameless and innocent. Now, this could be misunderstood, this, this passage that we're looking at, because we have to remember, we don't become blameless and innocent by doing verse 14, which said, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may, may be, become blameless. Christians are made blameless because they've trusted in Jesus Christ. Paul, of course, knows this, and that's what he's talking about in verse 16. So he's moving towards the beginning of this 16th verse, where he encourages them, if they're going to shine, they should be holding fast to the word of life. Now, the word of life is the message of the gospel. Our Lord's disciples in the New Testament, they, they knew this. They knew it. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, in his letter to churches, in 1 John, right at the beginning, he, he talks about seeing the Lord. And he says this, that which was from the beginning, that's Jesus and the message about Jesus, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the word of life. He is the Word made flesh. He is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. The disciples knew this. On one occasion, Jesus' teaching began to offend the crowds and many people began to leave Jesus. Watch out, lest you're ever offended by Jesus. People are offended by Jesus and they, and they were leaving and Jesus looked at his disciples, his, his closest followers, and he said to them, will you leave also? And Simon Peter, in John chapter 6 and verse 68, he answered, I think speaking for the other disciples as well, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus Christ came into the world to die for sinners who would believe in Him so that they might have eternal life. That's the gospel. That is the word of life. 
That is what Christian people like you and me and like our ancient brothers and sisters in the city of Philippi are holding fast to. They're holding fast to the word of life. And that's what makes them, like at the beginning of verse 15, blameless and innocent children of God. And that makes us and them different than the crooked and twisted world around us, and it prepares us to shine for Jesus in a dark world. So when I went through the, the tunnel under Carter Hall, and uh, my light went out down there, I was all alone, and I was wondering why I didn't bring a, a radio with me. I was the only one down there. But if, if you could imagine for a minute that there was someone else with me, and the two of us were together, stuck down there in that little crawled tunnel. And I pulled out my nerdy pin light and, and lit up a little bit. Then I would have served that other person really well to, to have that light. And we understand that if you've got two guys in the dark and one of them is holding a light, the person with the light is really going to stand out. And so we Christians, we stand out as we cling to the gospel in a dark world. And we live in a world, as you know, that needs the gospel. Have you considered it as you look at all the troubles in the world? You open a news app. You turn on the TV, not recommended, but you do that. And you look at the news and you see all the troubles in the world and you think about all the needs that are in the world and there are many needs that we can respond to. I saw the, the compassion team meeting this morning and they're planning and mobilizing to, to meet needs in our community by sharing the love of Jesus Christ with people in our community. They're going to minister to physical needs and they're going to help people. And so there are many needs to respond to. But they know our compassion team and you know and Paul knows that what the world needs the most is the good news of Jesus Christ. We are holding on to it and we live in a generation that needs it. And you just think about all the light that it can bring to this world. So, if we want to shine in this dark world, we must hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, that's our first point. But if we're going to shine properly, then we ought to press in a little more to this idea of not conforming to the world around us, which leads us to a second point, and that is to shine in this dark world, we must not grumble and dispute. Now, I tried to make that roll off the tongue a little better Last night, I worked on it a bit. I wanted to say this positively, like we should have cheerful thoughts and happy thoughts and words and so on. And I even involved my family and I tried to get them to help me think of a better way to make this second point. You know, I really couldn't come up with anything. I decided it was okay to say this negatively because that's how Paul says it, right? In verse 14, he says, don't grumble and dispute. Something like, Quit whining about stuff. 
Now, I, I don't think he's scolding the Philippian church. This is a very fine church. They loved the Lord. They loved Paul. I, I think he's trying to equip them. He's putting tools in their toolbox. And he's saying to them, you want to shine for Jesus Christ in the world so that other people can be saved just like you've been saved. And so here's how you do it. Hold on to the gospel. Always carry the torch of the gospel. And make sure as you do that, that you aren't whining and complaining the whole time because that doesn't work. So you, you want to stand out and look different. So he exhorts them in verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, I grew up, Jennifer and I, as, as young Christian adults, reading the New International Version. I, I was kind of wondering if the NIV for my generation isn't something like the King James was for my parents' generation. And so when I come to this verse, I want to say, do all things without complaining and arguing. That's what the NIV says. And that's super easy to understand, right? Because we know what complaining is. We know what arguing is. And when we come to this and it says grumbling and disputing, it's a little bit harder to get our brains around. But I do think it's better. And here's why. You, you can complain and it's okay, right? There's, it's okay to have a right complaint. David complains to God in, in the Psalms. Lots he complains to God, crying out to God. Organizations, businesses, even churches, even this one, we receive complaints willingly. Just be nice, okay? But, but we receive complaints willingly and they, they help us to grow. So complaining can be very positive. You can argue in a good way too to try to win your brother or your sister and, and prove your point. But grumbling, I actually looked it up in the dictionary and it says to complain about something in a bad-tempered way. Now that's never the right thing to do. And I would, I would adjust the dictionary def definition. I would say to complain about something in a sinful way. And then by context, this disputing or dialogue is what it is, of arguing back and forth. In, in the context, obviously, it's also being done in a sinful way. And so Paul is saying, don't be grumbling, murmuring, disputing in a, in a sinful way. This is true in a comprehensive sense. A constantly griping Christian looks like he or she does not believe what he or she says they really believe. And, and I think that can be proven it, 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 all, all over the place in the Bible, but I was thinking of 2 Corinthians 4, 17, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So when I drive down the road with my children in my car in the morning and I gripe about how slow all the school buses are, that's just not reflecting what I really believe. And that's a very petty example. I know many of you face very dark things. But we, we believe we are headed to glory. We believe we'll stand in the presence of the Savior in, in glory one day. And, but if we gripe and complain all the time, it, it kind of looks like very inconsistent, at least. Christians shouldn't be doing it. 
in a general sense. Now, while that's true, probably Paul has something a little more narrow in view than just generic complaining. He is probably telling us that we shouldn't be grumbling and disputing in the face of those things God calls us to do. And I say that because of the context. We didn't read verses 12 and 13, but in verse 13, Paul had just been saying to them, God is working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And he said at the end of verse 12 that the Christians should work out their salvation with fear and trembling. So God is calling his people to do some things. He's calling them to follow him and to serve him, having been saved through the grace of God by faith in Christ, Christians should then willingly and cheerfully and readily obey the Savior. And following after Jesus Christ shouldn't be accompanied with murmuring like the Old Testament people did. They'd been freed from slavery in Egypt and it wasn't any time at all before they were complaining about the food. You can read about it in Exodus 14 and 15 and Numbers 14. God wants us to receive the word of life. And as we do that, he doesn't want us to reject his way of doing things. Murmuring and complaining. That word disputing, the end of verse 14, it's, it's the word dialogue. It's like a dialogue or a conversation. We, we do this. We... We, we do it internally and with others. Internally, we, we have conversations with ourselves all the time about things. Jesus knows this. So teaching in His great Sermon on the Mount, He said in Matthew 5.19, out of the heart come evil thoughts. That, that phrase there, evil thoughts, it's the same word Paul is using, disputing. So sometimes we see God has told us something in, in, in the Word, He wants us to do something. He's calling us to do something, and we just start arguing with God about it in our hearts. Lord, I don't want to. I don't feel like it. But they did this, and so on. So with this internal dispute going on, but it, it boils over to the surface. Mickey Connolly and, and Bill were doing a breakout session for the men at the leaders retreat this weekend. And Mickey related the story of Jesus in the gospel, walking along the road with his disciples. And he says to his disciples, he is going to die for them. He's talking about his work on the cross. And they don't understand what he's talking about. They're too self-focused to ask him what he's talking about. And instead, what they do is they start arguing with one another about which one of them is the greatest. It's just absurd. Walking along behind Jesus. Who's the greatest? I think I'm the greatest and so on. It's embarrassing that they do this. Well, that, that word arguing, they begin arguing with one another. It's this same word, disputing. So when, when Christian people are arguing in their hearts with the Lord, and, they're, and we're talking about sinful arguing here, right? Not complaining and seeking God's face, but complaining because you don't like what God is doing. 
You don't want to follow God. You don't want to do what he wants. You want to do your own thing. You want to focus on yourself. And, and that's going on just in your heart. And then you argue with the people around you. This is not shining for Jesus. And I think this is a very significant point for us because we live in a time now that is very argumentative. Public discourse seems paralyzed by polarized arguments. But you know, it's nothing new. The Philippian Christians, they lived in the very same world that we do. And just think about how very different Christian people seem when they do not spend their time grumbling and disputing with one another in the world. You know, there's a way to argue rightly. There's a way to complain rightly. But do we argue and complain while holding fast to the word of life? This is very important because what we want to see in this world around us are lives that are changed. And there are a lot of people arguing for change in different ways. But, you know, legislation isn't really going to change lives in an ultimate sense. But the word of life, the gospel of Jesus Christ, changes lives in an ultimate sense. People need the word of life. And if you don't grumble and constantly dispute in this world, and instead you share the gospel of Jesus Christ, you'll shine. And our third point and finally, to shine in this dark world, we must joyfully serve the Lord. Now, Paul's going to add some incentive for us here to his thoughts. First of all, he points to the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 16 again, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may proclaim that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So he's, he's pointing to the day of of Christ. That's the great day where we will stand before the King of Kings. And it may happen when you die and you stand before the Lord, or it may happen when he returns in glory with all of his mighty angels. But one day you will stand before the King of Kings. That is the day of Christ. Question for us this morning. Do we want to be translated into that great day? while we are in the middle of griping and complaining about something? Do we want to suddenly be standing before Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, after we have spent the afternoon arguing with our brothers and sisters about something? These are very significant questions. What will seem important to us when Jesus Christ returns? What will seem important? And what are we communicating about what we believe and about what we think is important through the way we think and the way we talk and the way we live? We must anticipate and be ready for that great day of Jesus Christ. Paul is giving us a powerful incentive here. We are accountable to our Savior Jesus. But he presses further by adding this personal element. 
Remember, Paul was the founding pastor of the church in Philippi. And he told them in verse 16 that he wanted to be proud that he didn't run in vain or labor in vain. He wanted to be proud of the work that was accomplished among them. He was, in a sense, their spiritual father. They had come to know Christ through his preaching and through his ministry. And it's very understandable that children naturally want to please their father. And I think he's appealing to that. He's saying, do, do, this, do this for me. I don't want the work that I did to be done in vain. He, he ran hard among them. He carried the gospel to them and shared it with them. And, and he labored hard for them. He, he taught them and he shepherded them and prayed for them. And even now he's writing to them from his imprisonment because he wants to encourage them. And he's telling them as, as like a father to children, don't waste my efforts. I don't want to have run in vain. So he's encouraging them in that way to hold fast to the word of life and not to succumb to the worldly way of arguing and fighting in an ugly manner. Now, the ESV there says that I may be proud, which is perfectly acceptable, but you might note some of the other English translations say that I may boast about, that I may boast about, and I think that, that at least helps me understand it just a little bit better because Paul isn't being self-centered here. He's not saying, I want to be proud of all the stuff I've accomplished. He's saying, I want to be able to brag about you and about what Jesus Christ has done in you and even how you use someone like me to help you. I want to be able to boast about Jesus Christ. Paul is not a proud man. I mean, we, we know he's not self-centered and proud just from the way he lives. He's writing from prison. He could have gotten out of that. But he went there because he wanted to serve Christ and, and the church. He says in verse 17, that even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, so that's like the, the Old Testament people, you read it in Numbers 28, I think, and even the Greeks in their pagan religion, they would take wine or, or, or something, and they would pour it out in front of an altar in the dirt. It'd just be spent. It'd be gone. It'd be used up. And, and Paul is saying, I'm willing and ready and wanting to be spent for Jesus Christ and to be spent for you. He's ready to die as a prisoner of Jesus. Now, we think, as we look at the historical context around this little letter, that Paul was released from this imprisonment that he writes from. But we know he is arrested again later for preaching. And then he is executed by the Roman government. He anticipates it in another one of his letters in 2 Timothy 4. And he uses this same phrase. I am being poured out like a drink offering the time of my departure has come. So, so Paul is willing to die for Jesus. He wants to serve Jesus Christ and give his life for Jesus Christ. Friends, if you're willing to die for the Lord, if, if that's the case, understand it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to murmur and dispute, to complain and gripe about everything all the time. I mean, why, why, why would you sweat the small stuff if you're willing to die for Jesus? That's who Paul was, and that's who I want to be. 
Now, I'm not going to lie to hundreds of people and say that's who I am, but that's who I want to be. Wouldn't you love to be willing to die for Jesus Christ, to live for that great day of Christ, to want to shine for Christ in a dark world? And if that's who we are, if that's with the help of the Holy Spirit, that's who we can increasingly become as we go through this life, then yeah, I think we do a lot less complaining and griping about things because we, we have our heart and our mind set on something bigger, on something greater, on something that really satisfies our souls and can satisfy our souls forever. And then we would want to be like Paul, boasting always and only about Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy. Paul's, Paul's boasting and, and joy in his life is the work of Christ among God's people. And I might just say, as I was watching, this was my first leaders retreat this weekend. And as I was just watching everybody at the retreat, community group leaders, ministry leaders, deacons, I was just thinking about how wonderful it is to see God's grace at work in the life of people in this church. And, and I was kind of prepping some of this and I was thinking about how, you know, we're not, we're not sinless. We're not perfect. Uh, I think a, a steady refrain I, I heard and I've, I felt it in my own heart was how really unworthy we are to serve the Lord and to do ministry. But I'm reminded it's not about us being worthy. It's about Him being worthy. It's about, it's about Jesus Christ working in us. And so we boast and glorify and honor Christ. That's what Paul does. He's full of joy as he sees what God is doing among the Philippian Christians. It's in the middle of verse 17. He talks about the sacrificial offering of their faith. That's the way they are serving Christ. He says, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. He's rejoicing because they are walking with Christ. That's what your pastors do when they see you walking with Christ. And then he wants them to rejoice with him. He says, verse 18, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Even as he suffers for the Lord, he has his joy because he sees that God is at work. George Mueller founded an orphanage in Bristol, England in the 19th century, and he claims, he says this himself, that he died, obviously he said this before he died, but in anticipation, he made it clear that he died a happy old man. And it's really notable that he said that in his 90s, because in his 90s, he had practically no possessions. He lived in one little room in one of the orphanages that he had helped establish. And he had, by this time in his life, buried all of his family and was alone. And yet, he had poured out his life, bringing the light of Jesus Christ to the world and serving the needy people of the world. He served thousands of children. And near the end of his life, he said this, written in his 90s, I am a happy old man. Indeed, I am a happy old man. I walk about my room and I say, Lord Jesus, I'm not alone for you are with me. I have buried my wives and my children, 
but you are left. I am never lonely or desolate with you and with your smile, which is better than life itself. I am a happy old man. This guy, George, I know him on a first name basis, is one of my heroes. I mean, wouldn't you like to be like that in your 90s? A happy old man, a happy old woman. Here's how Paul says to do it. Be spent for Jesus Christ, serving Him, sacrificing for Him. And why? Why would you do that? You would do it because you are full of joy in having Him as your Savior. And as you serve the Lord, full of joy, you will shine in a dark world. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much. Thank You so much for this letter. It's, it's challenging us not to complain, not to dispute. Challenging us to be willing to pour out our lives for Jesus. And yet amazingly, it's so full of grace in showing us that we would do this because He is the Word of life. More precious than life, more glorious. And our calling to follow Him is a joyful calling, Lord. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.